Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We've been in a series that we've entitled Jesus, the greatest of all time. And we come to Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 19. And as we approach this passage, we come to another warning passage. And the book of Hebrews is filled with these warning passages to remind the people to be careful. Now, the first recipients of this letter, now remember, this letter was written about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these individuals who had given their lives to Jesus Christ were now finding themselves being pushed back and being persecuted for their allegiance to Christ. And they were tempted to give up and give in on their walk with Christ. They were tempted to hedge their bets when it came to their relationship with Christ. And to be honest with you, I'm going to imagine that you and I have been tempted to do that as well. In school, we're tempted to hedge our relationship with Jesus. Maybe at work or in the neighborhood, someone begins to ask questions or maybe makes a comment about Jesus that maybe is derogatory or, or uh, seemingly against the cause of Christ. And it's easy, as the disciples did, when the going gets tough, to take a step back away from Jesus. This is what these readers were struggling with. If I take a step back away from Jesus, then my life will go a little better for me. I'll have a little more comfort. I'll have a little more peace. And the writer says, listen, I've told you again and again in the first couple chapters of this letter that Jesus is the greatest of all time. And I want you to know, and we need to hear this this morning, that to give up on Jesus, to take a step back from Jesus would be the most foolish thing any of us could do. And so he wants to remind us through a history lesson today of a generation from Israel's history that to give up on Jesus is to miss out on the promises that God has for us, the great many great promises that God has for his people if we will remain faithful and true to him until the end. And so with that, let's look at this text before us, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through the end of the passage, verse 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked, that speaking of God, provoked for 40 years? Was it not those of those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient, so we see that they were unable to enter because 
of unbelief. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this service. We thank you for what you've already taught us through the singing of of your greatness and your majesty, that we are not alone. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that this church is much bigger than us as we've dedicated families and children to the Lord. A reminder that we have a a gift, a trust of faith to give on to future generations. We thank you for each of these families that have dedicated themselves and dedicated their children to you. Now, Lord, as we are reminded of an incredible generation of the past, I pray, Lord, that through their example, we might not fall prey to the same thing they did. Turning away from you, giving up on you, but, Lord, that we might learn from them and we might follow you and obey you all the days of our life. We ask now for your blessing on our time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In our text today, we have a history lesson. A history lesson of one of the most well-known and documented generations of all of Israel's history. This generation was the greatest generation of all generations in all of Israel's history. This generation saw more of the moving of God in their life. This generation, above all other Israelite generations, saw more miracles, saw more hands and workings of God in their life than any other generation. They would experience God in greater ways than anyone else. And yet what we're going to hear is that this generation rebelled from God. And because of that, they serve as an example. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we are told that this generation served us as an example of what not to do. This is an example that we point to and we say, don't be like them. Those who experience the goodness and the greatness of God only to turn away with hardened hearts and to rebel against the great God who had loved on them and who had blessed them in so many great ways. We too are being blessed by the Lord. Each and every day, you and I experience the goodness and the grace of Almighty God. And we too run the risk of being tempted to turn those, to turn away from those things and to go our own way. And so this serves as an example for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ to bolster our belief. That is to strengthen our faith. The book of Hebrews is all about you and I strengthening our muscles through the grace of God so that we can persevere to the end. So how do we bolster our belief this morning? I want you to write this down. There are three ways that we can bolster our belief in the text this morning. First of all, we bolster our belief by never forgetting about a spiritual pandemic. We're going to look at a spiritual pandemic this morning. Now, right away, you hear the word pandemic and your mind goes to COVID-19. Let's be honest. This pandemic has changed every aspect of our lives. One of the nation's top doctors said this week, hey, Thanksgiving's going to look a whole lot different than it normally does. Why? Because this pandemic has had a way of changing the way we live life. Well, that is true for a spiritual pandemic as well. While COVID seems to be all about us, we recognize that there is a far more insidious 
pandemic that's going on in the hearts of people. Now, COVID affects the lungs. COVID takes away your ability to taste and smell. COVID puts you in the hospital. But this spiritual apathy, this spiritual pandemic, listen, is far more subtle. It affects the heart. The Bible says that this uh, pandemic hardens the heart. It literally causes us to stop following God and his word and to go after sin. This pandemic was so insidious that of the 600,000 men, not including women and children, but the 600,000 men who would leave Egypt, all but two would be infected. Talk about a transmission rate. And so we need to stop and we need to take stock and ask the question, is that pandemic alive and well today? And the answer is through the author of Hebrews, absolutely. We need to be ready for this pandemic. We need to do everything we can because as we learn from this pandemic of of the Israelites of years ago, it was incredibly contagious. And if we're not careful... We could be passing disbelief on to others and maybe not even knowing it. Now, what we have in verses 7 through 11 is pulled right out of Psalm 95. Now, why would the author of Hebrews sing a song from Psalm 95? The reason is, is it's a reminder that their forefathers and their foremothers had been singing and praising the uh, the name of Jesus and reminding one another, when they gathered together, let's not be like this generation. Let's not fall prey to the things they fell prey to. Let's remind ourselves not to do what they did. And so they sang this back and forth. Don't allow your hearts to be hard, don't, hardened. Don't allow God to turn to you in wrath because of your disobedience. So let's remember these things so we don't ever do this again. But what is he talking about? He's talking about a particular situation or scenario. The generation that he's talking about, notice in the text, it is the generation that had been in the wilderness. That helps us understand it. It was a generation that had been in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was a generation that did not enter the rest of God. Well, where is that generation? How do we know what generation he's talking about? Those three pictures give us a glimpse of what generation he's talking about. He's talking about the generation that would leave Egypt and walk towards the promised land, but yet never get there. He's talking about the generation of people that Moses led out of Egypt. Now let's recognize a little bit about that. For 400 years, these people had experienced bondage and slavery to their Egyptian masters. For 400 years, they couldn't worship like they wanted to. For 400 years, they couldn't go and do what they wanted to. For 400 years, they were held prisoner in Egypt. And God hears this generation, not the other nine generations before them, but this generation, God hears and answers their prayer of wanting to be set free. And God sends Moses into Egypt, into Pharaoh's house, and, and Moses says, let my people go. As a representative of God and God's people, he goes. Now, of course, Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. You're not going to be able to do that. And Moses says, all right, God's going to reckon this upon you. And so what does he do? He brings 10 plagues. And these 10 plagues fall on the Egyptians and Pharaoh. 
And slowly and surely, they begin to melt. Slowly and surely, they begin to start saying, maybe we need to get rid of these people. They're not worth the trouble of all of these plagues. And then with the final plague, the taking of the firstborn in all of Egypt, while the Israelites are enjoying the mercy of God as they enjoy the Passover for the very first time, Pharaoh finally says, I give up. And he sends the Israelites out. He gives them all of the treasures of Egypt. And he sends three million people packing. Fine, you want out? There's the door. And they head out. Imagine with me for a moment the incredible exaltation of God, the worship of God on that day. As that caravan left Egypt, the excitement, our God is our redeemer, our God is our liberator, our God is our great savior. And they lifted up their voices to God saying, we are with you, God, you are our God and we are your people and let's take the world together. This generation started out so well, but something went terribly wrong. Now, God wasn't done yet. As they leave Egypt, they begin to hear the footsteps of Pharaoh's army being backed up to the Red Sea, now looking face to face to their enemy again, who's coming to take them back into slavery with no answer, with no standing army. God protects them. He begins to allow the Red Sea to be parted. They walk through on dry land. Pharaoh's army follows after him, and we know what happens. The wall of water falls upon Pharaoh. The enemy is vanquished once and for all. Now the journey begins into the wilderness, and God meets them every day. They're hungry, and God brings manna down from heaven. They're thirsty, and God produces water from a rock. They need shoes, and God allows their shoes not to be worn out for 40 years. All of this stuff takes place. They need meat, and God gives them quail. Each and every day, every one of their needs are met. They are led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. They have all they need. God has been so incredibly merciful and gracious and generous to this people. And notice what it says. And they thanked God every single day. They praised God every single day. No, that's not what it says at all. It says they rebelled against God. Time out. Wait a minute. God gives them blessing. God gives them their necessities. God takes care of them. And what is their response? They say, no, thanks, God. We'll do this on our own. That should stop us and put every Christ follower stopping in their tracks. To be recipients of God's grace and yet to go our own way wasn't just a temptation of that generation of people, but it's true of us today. We who experience all of the goodness of God are tempted to drift away into disobedience. Now, how do we get there? We have to figure out what are the symptoms to these things. Now, doctors have told us with regards to COVID that you need to be on the lookout for these symptoms. And one of the things that's a little scary with this sickness is that you may be asymptomatic, meaning you might be a carrier of the sickness and you don't know it. You know that's true of this spiritual pandemic as well, that you may not know that you're carrying the sickness around. But what we need to do is look at the symptoms and ask, what are the symptoms to this spiritual apathy? There are three. I want you to write these down. The first one we see in the people in the wilderness is that they were discontented. They were discontented. 
That is, they began to be bored with the things that God had given them. Manna again? I am so sick and tired of manna. I am so sick and tired of walking around in this wilderness. When are we going to get there? Now, this wasn't verbalized. Discontentment is a malady of the heart. Nobody knows you're discontented. Listen, your spouse doesn't know you're discontented with them right now. Your kids don't know that you're discontented with them and their performance. Your boss doesn't know you're discontented with them in the workplace. Your pastor doesn't know you're discontented with the church. That's something that you keep close to the vest. It happens in the heart. The first symptom of spiritual apathy is a discontentment. Now, it's going to start with this idea of being bored with what God has given the second thing that's going to happen is, is what the Israelites did. They start with being bored. We're getting the same stuff over and over again. God gives us no variety to then comparing what others have. Would you believe that these individuals got so bored with the days in the wilderness that they actually said on numerous occasions, let's go back to Egypt? Let's go back. We had it better when we were slaves. Are you kidding me? The lies they were telling themselves, but their discontented hearts say, but I like what they have. And some of us are so discontented, we start to look at what other people have and say the following things, okay? And we don't say these out loud. We say them to ourselves. My life would be better if I was married to her or if I was married to him. Or I would, I would be filled with Christian joy if my kids were doing better in school or better in life. Or, you know, I might love Jesus more if I drove the car they drove or if I had the house that they had or if I didn't have the problems that I do. Look at them. They live a carefree life. And so what we begin to do in our heart and our mind is we begin to become discontented and we begin to compare ourselves with other people. These individuals were comparing life in Egypt as slaves as being better than their life with God in freedom. That's the foolishness of our discontentment. We many times want something that's worse off for us in the long run. The second thing that it does is, listen, anytime something happens in the heart, Jesus says it always overflows. The Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The second area, the second symptom you're going to know you're moving towards spiritual apathy is when not only are you discontented in your heart, nobody sees that, so nobody knows that you can fake everybody out on that, but it should become disgruntled. You become disgruntled. Now, there are two phases of disgruntledment that we see in the people of Israel. First of all, it begins with murmuring, murmuring. It's one of those things, I forget, it's a homononopia or whatever you, you say those things. A homophone, that's what it is. It sounds like it, okay? Hooked on phonics work for me, okay? Murmuring, when you say it, it just sounds like it. Murmuring. Murmuring literally is little grunts or groans. If you have ever been in a long journey in the car with children, you know what I'm talking about. Are we there yet? I'm going to die. It's so long. I only have Netflix and every app on my phone. I don't know what it's like to look out the window without air conditioning for 48 hours straight. No, I've got my whole entertainment center here. Are we there yet? That's murmuring. And they did that. They murmured. 
they, they, they internally complained. But then it leads to from, notice how bad, and our children do this, do you know how hard I have it? That's murmuring, little grunts and groans. But then that moves to grumbling and complaining. 25 times in the Bible, the Bible authors point to this generation and say they were a grumbling and complaining generation. That is, they were known for their complaining. And what complaining and grumbling is different than murmuring? Murmuring is, don't forget me, look at me. Grumbling and complaining says, you're the problem. So they grumbled and complained about their conditions. They grumbled and complained about Moses. He's not leading us well. And can you imagine? They grumbled and complained against God. And what they say is, I am in my condition. Murmuring says, I'm in a bad condition. Grumbling and complaining says, you are the reason I'm in this condition. And so we have this going on. And the question is, are we leading other people astray through our grumbling? Have you ever noticed that grumbling is contagious? There's a lot of contagion to grumbling. I tell people this all the time. Grumbling are the two guys on the Muppet show in the balcony. Well, I think that was a terrible show. That was just terrible. They did a terrible job. And that's how we sound when we grumble. Well, I thought that was a terrible message. Why does Pastor Tim talk so long and he makes no earthly explanation of what he's talking about? Okay? Or why'd they sing the songs? Josh's guitar was way too loud. I just don't understand it. Do you understand that? Go to our small groups and we talk like this. Even though we're women, we talk like this. <laughs> and this is what the children of Israel are doing. Well, we got to have manna. Manna's stupid. I hate manna. You hate manna? We hate manna. We all, who's with me? We all hate manna. Okay, yeah, see, Lance, Tina, you're not sitting next to him and keeping him in line. That's the problem, okay? A lot of grumbling and complaining going on. This is where it begins to go. But listen, grumbling, complaining leads to one other thing, and that's disobedience. You cannot think or feel things and not say things. Listen, you can't say things and not do things. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the mouth, feet and hands move to action. And so what happens? They start building idols. They start saying, God, we're not going to do things. They start rebelling against Moses. And all of this stuff is happening day after day amidst God's goodness to them. Let me ask you this morning. You've been saved by the grace of God. God bestows upon you blessing upon blessing. Let me ask you, are you grumbling this morning? Are you murmuring? Are you putting a group of people together to murmur and grumble? And are you finally saying, Lord, I don't want to go your way. I don't want to follow you anymore. And God said, fine. You don't want to follow me? You're going to walk around this wilderness for the rest of your lives. We're going to bury you here. Can I, can I just tell you how sad that is? A life that, listen to me very carefully, a life that leads to nowhere Some of you right now, and I say this with all love and sincerity, because of discontentment and disgruntledness and disobedience, you're walking around this life in circles. And you keep wondering, why is God not blessing me? Why am I not getting where I need to be? Because you just keep wandering around. 
And in the wilderness experience, God meets you, and God's meeting you right now, but you're too blind to those things, and you turn away from those things. You don't see it, and you're unhappy, and you're wandering around, and you, little do you know, I just walked by that tree. Didn't I walk by that tree last week, last year? Same tree. Why am I? Wait a minute. And they never understood they weren't getting anywhere. So what are we to do with this? We need an antidote. We need a vaccine for this pandemic. And we need it as soon as possible. So what do we need? We need God's advice. What's his advice? Find some spiritual partners. Find some partners. Notice in the text, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So we don't want to have an unbelieving heart. We don't want to fall away from the living God. So what do we do? We take care. And notice what else? We exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God's word says, you don't want this hardening of your heart. You don't want to fall prey to this pandemic. Find some people around you. What are these people going to do? Well, first of all, who's to help you? Your holy brothers and sisters. That is Christians that are on this journey with you. But what are the two things these Christians are supposed to do? Number one, they're to protect us. They're to protect us. Write that down. Take care brothers. That phrase there, take care, is one of warning. Beware. Look out. There's danger ahead. We are to be on the lookout for something on behalf of someone else. What are we to be looking for? The deceitfulness of sins. That is the lies of sin. The devil knows what lies work on you. He's got a playbook on each and every one of us. Now here's the craziness of the deceitfulness of sin, the lies of the devil. They may work on you, but they don't always work on other people. Let me explain what I mean. Ladies, there are lies that the devil uses on you ladies that works every time. Every time. The devil says you're not beautiful. The devil tells you that you don't have worth unless a man tells you that you have worth. And many of you ladies fall to those lies. Now, don't think that I'm singling you out. Guys, there are lies that we are told. We are told the world revolves around us. We are told that uh, our worth is found in how much we provide for our family. You know, men, we don't fall to the ladies' lies. And ladies, most generally, you don't fall to the men's lies. Did you know there's lies that young people hear? Lies about what it means to be popular, lies about what it means for identity, and there are lies even within generation. We have the lies of, of who we are, our gender, and our sexuality that's going on right now. And it wasn't the lies that I was hearing when I was a kid, but it's a new generation of lies. And so that's why old people, you've got your own lies to worry about, and young people, you've got your own lies to worry about. The devil doesn't use just one standard lie for everybody. And so what we need, because we're being bombarded, by our own lies, we need to recognize those lies are deceitful, meaning we fall prey to those lies really, really easy. So what we need is, so let me use myself as an example, I've got a set of lies that I fall prey to all the time. What I need are people around me who don't fall prey to those lies and say, hey Tim, look out. You're going to fall for that trap again. Stay away from that. I need people in my life who are going to protect me from those lies. 
So I need to identify a couple things. One, what are the lies I believe? One of the favorite books that I've seen are lies that women believe. There need to be lies that men believe, lies that old people believe, lies that young people believe. How to identify them and how to make sure we don't fall for them. So I need to tell my brothers and sisters around me, listen, Tim Bedall falls to these lies. Can you look out for these? Can you be careful that I don't fall prey to them? We need to be doing this. Now, right away you say, well, whose job is this? Well, it's the pastor's job. Can I tell you something? There was one person in this generation who was telling them to be careful of these lies and it wasn't enough and it was Moses. Moses was telling this generation, so it's not good enough that it's just one person. It's got to be all of us. We'll talk about that in a moment. What's the second thing that we see? We need uh, people, partners that are going to not just protect us, that's the defensive side of it, but push us. The text goes on and it says, okay, how do we keep from the deceitfulness of sin? We need to exhort one another every day. Exhort, literally, that word exhortation is the idea of one coming alongside another to render aid. This is what the Holy Spirit is. He's the paraclete, the helper of us, to give us aid in our hour of need. The best word picture, excuse me, of this is you're driving down the road and you see a car on the side of the road and you're quickly able to diagnose the reason why they're on the side of the road is they've got a flat tire. You go to the person in the driver's seat and they're sitting in there and you say, why aren't you driving on the road? Well, I have a flat tire. I can't move anymore. Every time I start driving, the car starts shaking. It's not working. Well, let me help you. Let's get out of the car. Let's go get your spare tire. Let's put the tire on. Let's get you back on the road to complete your journey. This is what exhortation is. It is finding someone who has found themselves on the side of the road in need of aid and helping them to work the process to get them back on the journey. Now, what is that journey? Or I'm sorry, what is that journey? Is It's holiness. What is that exhortation? Notice at the beginning of the, of the passage, and then it will say it again in the middle part of the passage. Today, if you hear his voice, what are we to be exhorting one another? Are you hearing the voice of God? I've known Mario Arendang, our student ministries pastor, for 20 years, and he drives me nuts absolutely drives me nuts because this is how he starts his conversation with me. Hey, Tim, what's the Lord been teaching you this week? I don't know. Why do you have to start with that, Mario? I mean, I'm I'm a pastor. I'm learning a lot from the Lord. No, Tim, what is God teaching you right now? He's living out Hebrews chapter 3. He's exhorting by asking the question, how are you hearing the voice of God? And notice, he doesn't ask the question, hey, what did you learn last year about the voice of God? Today, if you hear his voice. Mario asks that question, why? Because he's living out what it means to push me. And if you've been around Mario, and I'm sure many of you have, he doesn't just do that with me, he does it with all of us, right? He does it. And he's showing for us what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We've got to push one another. And so when we gather together, one of the things we always have to be asking is, what's the Lord teaching you? What are you learning from the Lord today? Today, what truth is holding you together to keep you not from diverting from the path? 
What's keeping you on this journey? What truth, what promise, what example, what verse is God teaching you? A reminder that we can't go a day without the exhortation of God's word and God's people in our lives. Well, whose ministry is this? It's everyone's. It's everyone's. The reason why this generation went down is they had a great pastor. Moses was the greatest leader, the greatest pastor, the greatest shepherd in the Old Testament days. And he still led a people who went astray. Why? It wasn't Moses' fault. It was the people's fault. And so we've got to do this ministry. All the blessings this group of people missed because they were not exhorting one another every day, don't fall to sin. Why? Because listen, it takes one day, one day for you to start the journey away from God. The journey away from God doesn't start in one big massive step of rebellion. Listen, the the children of Israel did not start their journey when they fashioned a golden calf to worship. It was little by little, drifting ever so slowly and subtly away from God and to their own. And notice what it says. They would not enter God's rest. They would not enjoy the graciousness and the generosity of God. They would miss the mark. Can that be said of us today? Can that be said that we are journeying away from the Lord and to our own demise? Now, what a passage. What a reminder how easily it is for us to fall into the same trap as this group of people. So, what do we do? Now, right away, the Pharisee in us looks across the aisle and says, I'm glad they're here today. They needed to hear this. Some of you old people are looking into the teenagers and saying, I'm glad the teenagers are here. Boy, they need to hear it, man. They're buying all these lies of the devil. That generation's not like our generation. We start talking grumbly again, okay? They need to hear it. Pastor preach it. The kids need to hear this. No, we need to stop and we need to recognize that we all fall to the deceitfulness of sin. Amen? And we need to hear this. And what we need to do is the third step in this process is we need to figure out our own spiritual progress. Where are we at? Now here's the correlation, and I'm going to close quickly here, but here's the correlation. Just as the children of Israel were set free to head to a promise that God had for them in the future, we too have been set free with a promise for the future. Do you see the correlation? They were led by a leader, Moses. We are led by a leader, Jesus. And so as we watch this journey unfold before us in the book of Exodus, we are in a journey. We are pilgrims. And the wilderness, listen, it wasn't their home. The wilderness is not our home. We are told we have a home in glory and we are just sojourners, pilgrimages, pilgrimages, pilgrims, passing through. Get that out twice as fast. And we're just passing through. This isn't our home. The wilderness was not the home of the Israelites. And so what do we need to do? The text ends with a set of questions and answers. And they're questions that we need to ask of ourselves. So let me read the text and then let me ask the questions. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Question here, okay? How could the group that was so excited to be set free start so well and finish so badly? Here's the question for us. Have you 
been liberated by Christ? If so, praise him today for your salvation. The idea here is you started well on your journey when you got saved. Can it be said of you that your spiritual fervor, your spiritual vitality from where it was when you got saved has waned? If so, today is the day that you say, God, you've been so very, very good to me. You have blessed me and I see with fresh eyes. My heart, though it has gotten harder, It's starting to soften as I'm reminded of the truth of what you've done for me. Jesus, you saved me and you liberated me and I praise the name of Jesus today. He's my savior. He's my Lord. And I recommit myself in praise and adoration as if it was my first day of being saved again. I love you, Jesus, and I'm going to worship and follow you. Can you do that? Can you say that today? Number two. He goes on and he says, and with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? God became angry with these people. Why? He was doing all the work and they were mindlessly wandering about. Let me ask you this question. Are you lollygagging in the wilderness? Lollygagging, it's a grandma word that I learned. Tim, stop lollygagging, and I had to understand what it is. Aimlessly wandering. In your Christian faith, are you aimlessly wandering? Not following the plan of God. These guys went all over the place. It should have been a very short journey from from Egypt to the promised land. They spent 40 years wandering about. Why? They were lollygagging. They had no plan or pursuit to follow God. And as a result, what they learned was they were playing with fire. And you and I, we're playing with fire. And we need to stop it before it's too late. Are you playing with fire, allowing your heart to be hardened? Are you allowing the deceitfulness of sin to lead you away into consequences that you could never have imagined? The sorrow, the pain. Imagine each and every day that someone died in that generation. Well, he didn't experience God's promises He didn't experience God's blessing. And you see that over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, there are some of you, listen to me very carefully, you are wandering in the wilderness of your own decisions. And you're blaming God and you're blaming other people. And and could it be, could it be, and you need to discern this for yourself, could it be because you've chosen to follow yourself and not God? Are you lollygagging? Stop before it's too late. I love that the passage says over and over again, today, today, today. You don't have to lollygag anymore. You can follow Christ because he is a gracious, gracious savior and savior who forgives. Finally, do you long for the promised land? If so, press on and don't grow stagnant. What should have driven the children of Israel from Egypt to where God wanted him was the promise of God. God said, listen, did I not liberate you? Yes. Have I not taken care of you? Yes. Am I not going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey? Their answer was no. 
They stopped believing the promises of God. Notice the last verse of the passage. They were unable to enter because of their unbelief. What was their unbelief? In God? No, they saw God. They knew there was a God. Their unbelief was that this God that they had seen work in their life, that his promise of the promised land was going to come true. Listen to me very carefully. You will fall to the hardening of your heart. You will fall to disbelief. When you stop believe, stop when you stop believing that there's a heaven. God has promised a land greater than beyond the Jordan to you and I. That whether through death or through the second coming of Jesus Christ, we will experience eternity in a place of heaven where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. But here on this side of that that great and glorious place, we can start to disbelieve. And our disbelief will lead us to our own sin and away from the blessing and rest of God, which we're going to learn about next week. So, do you believe in the promised land? Then live it today. Press on. Now this is where Jesus is so gracious because he says today you can change. Today you can repent. Today you can give your life anew to me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the author and perfecter of that faith. I'm going to go before you and I'm going to see you through to the end. And listen, when Joshua and Caleb, the two of the 600,000 that made it, do you think they regretted their obedience Do you think they sat there and said, man, I would have rather have died in the wilderness when they were experiencing with their family the promised land? Listen to me, when we get to heaven, we used to sing a song, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Listen, you'll never regret following Jesus instead of wandering in the wilderness. Amen? Amen. So don't give up and don't quit. And in doing so, God will show us each and every day that he's going to see us to the finish line.